Well, hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Harbor Teaching Podcast. We hope that the messages you will hear are both uplifting and challenging. And now, welcome to the Harbor. Hello. How are you guys? So good. So good. So I do have a chair. I wasn't going to share this, but I'm going to, so you understand. I fell on my stairs this week, and um, <laughs> the doctor was like, yeah, you don't need to be standing. I'm like, cool. I got to teach, so bye. So here we are. So glad to be here with you guys. If I can get my little tablet to work. There we go. So for those of you who don't know, as Brian said, my name's Tara. I've been on staff here at the Harbor, well, at the church for nine years. Brian just hit the 10-year mark, so good job, Brian. I just hit the nine-year mark, so congratulations. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. There's a lot of prayer tonight, but I'm into it. So um, God, we come before you, and we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you are faithful in the midst of the mess. We thank you that you are faithful on the mountaintop. And so, God, we just pray that you would be here tonight, that you would speak, that you would move. Um, and yeah, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So leading up to this teaching, whenever I would tell someone that I was teaching Job, I would get, uh, oh, you're teaching Job? I'm like, yeah, what's, what's wrong with teaching Job? And they're like, oh, it's so heavy. Oh, it's just so heavy. I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's a hard book, but I love the book of Job. Does anybody else in here like, really appreciate the book of Job? All right. I'm glad you're here for this then. <laughs> um, so before we jump into the text, as Brian said, I'm going to share some of my story. And up front, I'm going to tell you that it's pretty raw. And honestly, some of it is still like very raw for me. It's heavy. And so when Brian asked me to teach Job, he did mention, hey, can you share your story? And it, you know, it made me nervous because, like I said, some of it is new. So I first got sick in 2008. Most of you guys are probably fairly young then. We don't talk about how old I was. 2008, I got sick with something called Graves' disease, which is a terrible name for an illness, right? You're like, oh, you got Graves' disease. I'm like, I'm going to die? Well, probably not. It was rough. I was in Texas, away from home. I was young. I was dumb. And so for six months, I just kept telling myself, you're just stressed out. You lost 30 pounds because you're stressed out. You don't have any muscle strength to straighten your hair because you're stressed out. You are throwing up every morning from pain. You're just stressed out. Your heart rate's 140. You're just stressed out. And I was clearly wrong. <laughs> so I get diagnosed. There's only two treatments for Graves' disease, right? Well, there's one now, but there was two at the time. And I ended up being allergic to both. So at this point, I'm like, wow, I must be a medical freak. Um, they talked me into doing radiation, which there were two options. There was surgery or radiation to take out the thyroid. I went in there, and I was like, I want surgery. I don't want radiation in my body. Just cut it out. And they were like, no, we should do radiation. Like, radiation's $900, surgery's $9,000. We had radiation, we're fine. I was like, okay, well, if you're fine, then I'll be fine, right? Not necessarily. So at this point, I have radiation, get rid of my thyroid, and I'm like, yes, okay, all right. This was my one big medical issue. We're done, we're over it. I wish. We're gonna fast forward to 2015. So six years ago, in January, I started to have heart issues. And it started at a Christian conference, a worship conference in Orlando. And I'm sitting and talking to friends, and all of a sudden something to my chest goes, and the room spins, and I'm going, what's happening? I didn't pass out, but I was real close. And I was like, what's happening right now? So I eventually get in with a cardiologist here locally, 
and he's a trip. First time I ever saw him, I was on my phone. I think I was checking work email, and he comes in. He's like, are you on Snapchat? And I was like, you're old. How do you even know what Snapchat is? He was like, I have a 16-year-old. He was like 60. I'm like, okay. So he was great. He was very thorough. We did every possible length of heart monitor, 24 hours, 48 hours, a week, a month. And kind of got some answers, but not really. And so then he was like, hey, we should, uh, we should do a tilt table test to try to, to discover this arrhythmia. Does anybody know what a tilt table test is? No? OK. It's this super archaic test where they put you on a hospital bed like this, and they strap you to the bed. You are strapped from here all the way down to the bed. And so they monitor you like this, and then they monitor you 80 degrees. So you're kind of standing. And about eight minutes into that, I go, hey, I don't feel good. And they're like, hmm, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know. I think I'm going to pass out or throw up. And they're like, OK. And then I'm like, well, are you going to put me down? And they're like, no. So this was, I would say, the first time that my body ever lost its mind, lost its mind. I couldn't see or hear out of this side. I was having trouble breathing. I was like on the verge of passing out, but I didn't. And I was sweating profusely, like through my clothes, which has never happened before or since. And when they put me back down, the cardiologist comes on. He's like, man, we did not find the arrhythmia we were looking for. However, there's something wrong with your autonomic nervous system. And I'm like, what the heck's an autonomic nervous system? I don't even know what that is. And he's like, it's, we'll figure it out together. I was like, I have no confidence right now. So a week later, I end up in the emergency room because that test is such a toll on my body. And I'm in the hospital bed, and this PA comes in. She stands in my bed like this. Tara, we got to talk. I'm like, that's just so intense, OK? She said, we found some things in your lungs. And I was like, that's not what I'm here for. She's like, yeah, but you have, you have nodules in your lungs. And I said, well, what are nodules? And she said, well, they're like tumors that are too small to be tumors. I was like, well. How many? And she's like, I don't know, there's a lot. <laughs> OK. She said, well, you need to go see a pulmonologist this week. And I was like, well, for, is that a lung doctor? And why? And she said, because we don't know if it's cancer or not. And I was like, I looked at the person who was with me. I was like, can she just drop the steward like that? Like, is she allowed to do that? And she was. So I go get tested. We still don't know what they are, just so you know. Like, they're still there. Nobody knows why they're there. But they freaked me out. Like, who's going to walk in and be like, you may have cancer, surprised. I know you're here for your heart, but you might have cancer. No. So 2016, my cardiologist says, hey, we're going we're gonna to put a heart monitor in your chest. I was like, that's intense. You're going to make me like the bionic woman? I'm down with that. <laughs> so we have the surgery, and God love my cardiologist. I don't see him anymore. Um, he put it in wrong. So he put it in wrong. And it gets infected. And so essentially, I have this open hole in my chest for six weeks. Six weeks, every morning, every night, I'm having to clean out this wound in my chest and walk around bandaged. And I'm like, what's happening? Why is this happening? So it ended up being a blessing in some ways because we caught arrhythmias. You know, they'd call me and be like, well, you're an SVT this week. And I'm like, OK, what do we do? Talk to your cardiologist. Oh, well, you were an AFib this week. And I was like, I thought that was for old people. Like, how is that possible? In the time they had the heart monitor, they found 10 different arrhythmias happening in my heart. And I'm like, well, why is this happening? But nobody knew. At this point, I kind of started questioning, is this from radiation? None of this stuff runs in my family. And we do believe it is. 
the nervous system and heart stuff. Now, there's a caveat, like, there are definitely times when you have to have radiation, right? In this moment, I didn't need it, and so I kind of wish I hadn't had it, but it happened, and here we are now. So I am mind blown at what's going on in my body. I'm like, one minute I'm doing cardio yoga and loving life and having a headstand um, contest with Amy Schroer, and now I'm like, can't get off the couch. So hard. So just when I think things can't get worse, this is a trend. I start to have a pain in my side. And I'm like, well, that's some weird gas. What's happening? Because it doesn't go away. So they send me to a GI. She sends me to have all these tests done. Like, most of you probably won't know what this means, but an endoscopy, a colonoscopy, another endoscopy, a HIDA scan, a gastric emptying test. And then they call me and say, your liver enzymes look like you're an alcoholic. And I was like, I am not an alcoholic. Maybe I had a glass of wine like this week, but they said that wouldn't do it. So you need to have a liver biopsy. Now that should have been my first like, hey, this isn't right, that they defaulted to a liver biopsy. Because as you may or may not know, the liver is the most like sensitive organ in your body, right? I was fully awake for this biopsy and I was not supposed to be. But I was, and I'll tell you what, feeling them take chunks out of your liver while you're awake is very traumatizing. I was like, y'all, I'm still awake. And they went, oh no, gave me more meds. So yeah, it was an adventure, I'll tell you. But it was very hard. I was in so much pain from that and I was so sick. I won't ever forget it. I was laying on my dining room floor and I was like, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. Can you just take me home? Can you just bring me home? Clearly he didn't. And I'm glad he didn't because I'm able to be here right now, you know? So the GI says, oh, you just have gallbladder issues. Let's just take your gallbladder out. I'm like, well, you're the doctor. I trust you, so let's take it out. And then I was still sick. <laughs> hey, I'm still sick. And it was a lot, right? So 2016 actually ended with my grandpa getting sick. And I don't know about you guys, but I was very close to my grandparents. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And if you know anything about it, it's tough. And I'm a realist. I think Brian would agree. I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. And so I knew that pancreatic cancer had a 4% survival rate. And it was hard for me to be like, you're going to beat it, Grandpa. You're going to do great. Couldn't do it. And I remember standing right back there in worship one week. And my arms are in the air, and I'm weeping. And I'm just like, oh. the song was saying, all my hope is in you. All my trust is in you. And my arms dropped, and I said, God, is all my hope in you, and is all my trust in you? And I'm not the type of person who's going to say, God told me, right? But this time, God told me. He said, if I never heal you, and if I never heal your grandfather, am I still good? Am I still good? And my immediate response was, yes, yes. Where else would I go? Like Peter, where else would I go? So with him, it ended up being two months from the time that he was diagnosed until the time that he died. And it was sudden, and it was terribly unexpected to be that quick, but I made it home in time. The problem is, we were all there, and we watched it happen, and it was terrible. It was traumatizing. 2016, grief was an endless ocean for me. It felt like it wasn't going to end. In 2016, I learned that illness and death is where faith, fear, and knowledge all collide. 
2017 rolls around, I'm still sick. There's a theme, right? So I'm grieving and I'm sick. So I tell my doctor multiple times, I'm still sick, I'm still sick. And said, can you please look at my pancreas? My grandfather just died from pancreatic cancer and I have similar symptoms. And she's like, nah. Her nurse practitioner said, you need to do this test. And she said, no, she's fine. It's, it's phantom gallbladder pain. She just wanted to do more procedures. So I fired her. At the end of 2017, I fired her. And I went to Advent Health in Orlando, which I had great experience there. So I saw a new doctor right away, and he sent me for a procedure. Right before the procedure, I told my friend who took me, I said, it just can't be my pancreas. It just can't be my pancreas. And I wake up from anesthesia, and I'm like, what happened? What did they find? And my friend Christina was like, you asked me 17 times what they found. And I was like, I probably did. I just wanted to know. Doctor comes in, very confused, and he's like, your pancreas is all scarred up. And I was like, you're not supposed to say that word. So he tells me, you have chronic pancreatitis. And I said, well, where did this come from? How do I have chronic pancreatitis? And he said, well, we need to do another test. It's more high risk, more invasive. I said, okay, we can do it. So this is difficult for me because I'm like, you know, if this other doctor had just listened, would I be in this place? So we do the test. My mom flies in. My best friend goes with me. And they say, well, we figured it out. Basically what's happening is this muscle is not opening and your, your enzymes are backing up and it's causing damage to your pancreas. So they did all the things. Now, pancreatitis, if you don't know, chronic pancreatitis is, it's hard to eat food. It's hard to retain nutrients. Then you take medicine that makes you gain weight because then you're like, I'm gonna take all the nutrients in. But it makes me sick and I never know what's gonna make me sick. Brian can attest, like we can be in a meeting and I'm eating soup and all of a sudden I'm like, I gotta go home because it just causes so much pain. So then I'm all, on all kinds of meds, right? Heart medicine for the pancreas, for the thyroid or lack thereof. And just, don't worry, this is the last one. Just when I think, what else can go wrong? This past January, who went to the Pause Pursue Retreat? Those pancakes were so good, weren't they? <laughs> well, after the retreat, my elbows hurt. And I was like, dang, making that pancake batter really messed up my elbows. That's weird. So after three months of this elbow pain, I go to my doctor, and she literally walked in and was like, I was like, yeah, Betsy, I know my elbows hurt. Can you help me? She literally looked at me like, what the heck, Tara? So we did blood work. She called the next morning and said, um, it looks like you have rheumatoid arthritis. We're going to send you to a rheumatologist. And I'm like, how? How can there be something else? And I text Brian, and I was like, I, I can't come in today. I cannot even process this right now, that something else could be going wrong. So I went and saw the new doctor. We did x-rays, we did blood work, and he's like, yeah, that's what you got. <laughs> Thank you. So nice of you to affirm that for me. My dad has rheumatoid arthritis, and I've always known that if you have one autoimmune illness, you are likely to get another. And I just was adamant my entire life, like, not gonna be me. That's not gonna be me. It's me. It's me. So here we are. The only treatment that I know of right now is they wanted to start me on a low-dose chemo, and I was like, I'm not there yet. I can handle elbow pain. We're six months into elbow pain, I can handle it. If it hits my knees again, we'll start it then. But I can't. So most of you probably didn't even know this stuff was going on with me, right? 
It's like this balancing act of like, take your meds, drink your water, eat the right foods, get enough rest, don't get too stressed, don't fall down the stairs, you know? And I'm not gonna say that the last six years has been all suffering, because it hasn't been. There's been really great stuff. We, I've loved what we're doing you know, in the harbor and in the youth center. It's been really, really good. There's been ups, there's been downs, but regardless, you just keep going, right? You keep serving the Lord, you keep loving people, and you keep going. So, now that you know my story, it should probably make sense to you why I like the book of Job a bit. So, um, the book of Job is only 42 chapters. We're going to get most of them tonight. We'll be out by 11. Just kidding. I timed myself. It was exactly 40 minutes. So, we can get started. So, first of all, I am going to give you some background on Job, if this wants to work. I think background is so important. All right. So, the author, the date and the place of the book of Job, um, they're all uncertain. And it may be that Job himself recorded the experiences or that somebody else did, an anonymous author. But judging by the style of Hebrew it uses, some scholars judge Job to be the oldest book in the Old Testament. They say, ancient it is beyond all dispute. It probably belongs to the same period covered by the book of Genesis and probably to the time of Abraham. Its lesson, therefore, is the oldest we could have, and it takes us back to the first lesson taught in the Bible itself. Now, the book of Job uh, is not primarily about one man's suffering and pain, per se, because his problem isn't financial, it's not social, and it's not medical. His central problem is theological. How many times is our central problem theological? So Job must deal with the fact, if you get nothing else out of tonight, hear this. Job must deal with the fact that in his life, God does not act the way he always thought God would and should act. He has to deal with the fact that in his life, like we do, God does not act the way he always thought he should and would act. The book of Job is not so much a record of solutions and explanations to this problem, but it's more revelation on Job's experience and the answers carried within the experience. So if you read through Job, you, you know that like the back and forth between his friends is pretty poetic, right? So it's one of the chief virtues, plus the rhetoric The book's rhetorical language seeks to produce an effort um, and effect in the listener, so us, rather than to communicate like a literal idea. And then it says that God's onslaught of rhetorical questions to Job, which we will get to, um, asking Job if he can do the same things that God does, it overwhelms both us and Job. So that being said, we're going to jump in. Now I'm going to read the first two chapters, and then we're going to summarize the next like 35, but we'll get there. All right, so Job 1. The title is, What is Happening on Earth? It says, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. In my brain, I always said Uz, but Bible online says Uz. Um, He was blameless. He was not sinless. He was blameless with his peers. He was a man of complete integrity. He had an impeccable reputation. He stayed away from evil. I think I missed something. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Now, he had seven sons and three daughters, so he had ten children. That's wild. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Like, I can't wrap my mind around that number of creatures that somebody could own. He also had many servants, and he was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. 
Now Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts for their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters in to celebrate with them. With, when these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For, for Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular practice. I think that is so precious, right? Job was such a leader and he loved his family so much that he prepared sacrifices just in case they sinned, just in case. He wanted to make sure they were covered. So Job 1, 6 through 12. Now I'm going to read this as I imagine. I'm going to pray that I don't blaspheme on the way, but um, this is how I imagine this happens, okay? It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, the adversary, also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where'd you come from? And Satan answered him, from roaming the earth, going back and forth on it. I imagine there's always a little sass there. Uh, then the Lord said to Satan, man, have you seen my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. So he's just bragging on Job. He's blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan replies, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that the flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But if you stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, all right, everything he has is in your power, but do not lay a finger on him. Everything he has is in your power, but don't lay a finger on him. So 13 through 19 kind of chronicle what comes next. And it's it is rough. Like, this happens in a manner, matter of probably like 10 minutes, I would guess. It says, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and he said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. So they all died. One was allowed to escape to go tell Job. While he was speaking, another messenger came and said the fire of God fell from heavens burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Already overwhelmed. While he was speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. I mean, at this point, I would probably be like, what's happening? While he was still speaking... Yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. So imagine in just a 10 minute span, you find out you've lost everything, including your 10 children. Losing one would be horrific. 10 would be it's mind blowing. Verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. That was customary way of mourning at the time. He fell to the ground in worship. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job's response to such tragedy was that he fell to the ground and worshiped God. So the first thing I want to challenge us with is what is your first gut reaction when tragedy or suffering happens? What is your gut reaction? And you don't obviously have to answer right now. I would encourage you, maybe like tonight or tomorrow, if you have a journal, just get a scrap of paper, write it down. Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the Lord. 
Chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. It's like he tags along for some reason. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my Job, my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Satan replies, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, in that culture, skin for skin was a bartering term that meant trade one skin for another. I didn't really dig too deep in that, but in my brain, it's like, I'll give you this bear skin if you give me that buffalo skin. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for that. So the devil is accusing Job of being willing to risk the skin of his children and his livestock to protect his own skin. So the Lord said to Satan, very well, he's in your hands, but you have to spare his life. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So to be clear, he's lost everything, worst of all, his children, and now he's been afflicted. So I've got a list for you of all the things the man was afflicted with. Intense pain, peeling and darkened skin, pus-filled erupting sores. That was very, very intense. Anorexia and emaciation, fever, depression, weeping, sleeplessness, nightmares, putrid breath, difficulty breathing, probably because of the putrid breath, failing vision, rotting teeth, haggard looks, painful swollen sores all over his body, itching, and it lasted for months. It wasn't like, oh, for a couple days my body was jacked. It was months. So needless to say, Job is now suffering in all the horrible ways, all the worst ways possible. But he's still got his wife, right? He's still got his wife. Verse 9, his wife says to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. That's what his wife says. Curse God and die. I wrote, yikes. I don't know that she would be a blessing at this point. But we have to keep in mind that she too is hurting, right? She has lost her children. She has lost everything as well. And often we speak out of our pain, right? Hurt people hurt people. So he replied, he said, you foolish woman, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So in this, Job is accepting that if the Lord gives us good things, why would we assume that we would not experience hardship, like ever? Personally, I can attest that some of the deepest character growth has come out of hardship and suffering. But Job, in all of this, did not sin. So when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, I had to practice that one, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw, this like gets me, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. When they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, No one said a word because of how great his suffering was. So let's pause here for a moment. Have you guys ever heard of the concept of ministry of presence? Raise your hand if you've heard of this. Okay, that's more than I thought. 
So basically, ministry of presence is exactly this. It's when your loved one or your friend or whomever is grieving or walking through suffering, and you just go and be with them. You don't have to speak. Just be present. Oftentimes, our presence speaks so much more than our words ever will. And that's what Job's friends did for seven days and seven nights. They sat with him among the ashes, and they mourned with him. And then Job finally speaks, and he shares his heart. I don't know about you, but when I speak and share my heart and I'm suffering, man, I hope that people are just going to listen. As one guy puts it on the seventh day, Job speaking, Job speaks, beginning a conversation in which each of his four friends shares his thoughts on Job's afflictions in long poetic statements. Now, these long poetic statements, they fill 35 chapters. He has four friends, 35 chapters. We're not going to hit them all, obviously. We're just going to do bits and pieces. So in chapter 3, Job laments the day of his birth. Verse 11 says, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? So intense. Verse 25, What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. The man is deep in the thick of the struggle. Like he is real deep in it. So in response to that, his lamenting his birth. In chapters 4 and 5, his friends Eliphaz, he tells Job that only the innocent prosper. So essentially, what did you do wrong? I don't know about you, but that hurts. In chapters 6 and 7, Job responds by saying that his complaint is just, but that his life has no hope. He says, I am, Job says, I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. Can you imagine getting to the place where that's what you say about your life? In chapter 8, his friend Bildad speaks up, and he tells Job to repent. He says, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore to you your prosperous state. So not only does Bildad say, bro, you're suffering, you need to repent, but he also says, your kids were sinners and their deaths were justified. I don't know how Job kept from sinning. It's like salt on a wound, on a festering wound. Yes, pun intended. Um, Chapter 9 gets a little bit spicy. Job talks about his innocence in verses 32 and 33. He says, God is not a mere mortal like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront one another in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us. I feel like that's a foreshadowing. Mediator. And then in chapter 10, Job changes his tune from fight me to pleading with God. In the next chapter, 11, his friend Zophar speaks up, though I'm sure Job wishes he hadn't, um, because his response, uh, Job, you probably deserve worse, and you don't fear the Lord. Like, I don't... I don't know where these people are getting this. So I'm going to read this portion really quick because this person summed up the 35 chapters super well. I'm not going to go through it all. But this is what he said. He didn't say who he was, so it's anonymous. Job responds to each of these remarks growing so irritated that he calls his friends worthless physicians with, who whitewash their advice with lies. 
After, that's so intense. After making pains to assert his blameless character, Job ponders man's relationship to God. He wonders why God judges people by their actions if God can just as easily alter or forgive their behavior. It is also unclear to Job how a human can appease or court God's justice. God is unseen and his ways are inscrutable and beyond human understanding. Moreover, humans cannot possibly persuade God with their words. God cannot be deceived, and Job admits that he does not even understand himself well enough to effectively plead his case to God. Job wishes for somebody who can mediate, for God to send, or for God to send him to Sheol, the deep place of the dead. Now Job's friends, Job's friends are offended that he scorns their wisdom, right? Have you ever had a friend come give you bad, bad advice, and when you're like, no, they're mad that you say no? That's how his friends are. His friends think that his questions are crafty and lack an appropriate fear of God. And they use many analogies and metaphors to stress their ongoing point that nothing good comes of wickedness. Clearly, that's what's happening to Job. Job sustains his confidence in spite of these criticisms, responding that even if he has done evil, it's his own personal problem. Furthermore, he believes that there is a witness or a redeemer in heaven who will vouch for his innocence? And after a while, it all proves too much for Job. He grows sarcastic, impatient, and afraid. He laments the injustice that God lets wicked people prosper while he and countless other innocent people suffer. Job wants to confront God and complain, but he cannot physically find God to do it. And he fears that wisdom is hidden from the human mind, so but he resolves to persist in pursuing wisdom by fearing God and avoiding evil. Great advice. So this all culminates with this other friend, Elihu, jumping in and saying, Job, you're a wicked man, and your excessive talking is a blight to the Lord. Okay, so let's just rehash. All his friends, I'm just going to say, his friends suck, okay? They just were not encouraging. They're brutal. Now, I will say, Psalm 27, 5, and 6 does say, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. This is true, but the key word there is sincere. Sincere friend. I imagine that my sincere friends are not going to say these things about me. So, I want to take a moment right here to encourage us all into how to respond to the people who are suffering and not be like Job's friends. So Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But what does this look like practically? Super simply, when I was walking through things, people would be like, what do you need? I did not know what I needed. I wasn't hungry. I, had, I didn't, didn't get food. wasn't hungry. So it looks like bringing people food. It looks like asking whoever's going through it if you can run errands for them, if you can bring them a Gatorade. It looks like sending them a package of things you know will help them or bless them. It looks like asking if you can babysit their kids, if they have kids. Things like that. Um, as Christ followers, we just want to do these things to bless our friends. But if we're honest, as humans, we also want people to feel better quickly. And we just want to fix things. Because let's be honest, let's be honest, watching someone suffer and hurt is hard and it can be uncomfortable, right? So in the moments when somebody shares their burdens with us, it's easy for us to spit out Christian platitudes. You know what I'm talking about. 
you share something and they're like, oh, God's got you. Or, oh, thank God it's not worse. Or, one of my favorites, they're in a better place. Or, man, the Lord's really teaching you something through this. <laughs> and lastly, my personal favorite, by his stripes you are healed. And that is true. Those are all true statements, right? But in the wrong timing, they're just platitudes. In a moment of suffering, they're not really helpful. One time I was walking through the commons over in the main building. I was sick. And somebody who I, I thought I could be honest with was like, hey, Tara, how are you? And I was like, oh, I'm not feeling so well today. And they were like, oh, baby girl, you are healed and whole in Jesus' name. And I went, but I'm not. I'm not healed. And they didn't know what to say. I just was so shocked by their casual, glib response, right? So it does us well in moments like that to consider, if someone said this to me in my time of struggle and pain, would it have been helpful? If the answer is no, we just don't say it. Silence is better than platitudes. So quick story, a good story. One of the most thoughtful things that's happened to me was last year on August 4th, it was the one year anniversary, I don't like saying anniversary, but it was one year since my grandma had died and she was like my best friend. She just got me in a way nobody else did. Her brother, my great uncle, who's super precious, he texted me and all he said was, hi honey, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you today and I love you. And I knew that he knew what day it was because it was his sister who passed, but he knew how close we were. And he took a moment out of his day to text me. And obviously, a year later, I'm still thinking about it because it blessed me. Little moments like that, little texts like that can change the course of someone's day. It blessed my heart, and I want to be somebody who's like that. Now, James 5, 13 through 16 says, Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I love those verses. Such a strong word. Now, as Christians... When our fix-it mindset kicks in, we often think to ourselves, I'm going to pray for them and they're going to be healed. And that may be true. But it needs to be done in a way that doesn't overwhelm the recipient and it maintains their integrity, right? Because how we approach praying for somebody matters. So if you want to pray for someone, wait for the right moment. Don't interrupt them. Don't overwhelm them. Overwhelm them. Just... Wait and approach them and ask them if you can pray for them. If you approach it that way, if you like wait for an in, kindly say, hey, can I pray for you? Most people are going to say yes. But if they look uncomfortable or they're like, no, <laughs> no, because people have said no, you just say, okay, I just want to let you know I'm going to be praying for you. That too is powerful. It matters. It matters how we approach praying for people. When somebody comes to me and tells me earnestly, hey, can I pray for you? And they do it just because they love me. Um, I feel valued and I feel cared for. But when somebody overhears that I have something going on and they jump in and force prayer on me, that's not always received well. I am also a sinner. Um, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. 
Prayer is good. We have Post Harbor Prayer Monthly because it is so good. Faith is good, and we need both bold faith and bold prayer in the church, also outside the church. Just keep in mind that when you're praying for people, some things are private, and some things people need space to deal with it. If I'm being honest, like I just shared my story with you, but uh, truthfully, I don't want a dozen people to jump me and try and pray for healing over me as I'm leaving, you know? Like, thank you. I still need space. I'm still, like, working through it. I, I covet your prayers, but I'm up here sharing my story for two reasons. One, to bring glory to God in all the ways he still works and moves in and through this broken body. And two, to share the story of Job and how God mightily worked in and through his life tragedies. If you haven't guessed, I've had some pretty bad experiences in this area. But I've also experienced healing. The Lord has healed me in the past, and it was incredible. It was life-changing. So we do have to keep in mind that the Lord heals if he so chooses to heal. And it can happen instantaneously, or it can happen slowly. And sometimes it doesn't happen at all. But unlike what Job's friends said, that doesn't always mean a person's lacking faith or walking in sin, or not fearing God. So all that to say, we just we don't want to be like Job's friends, right? We want to practice the ministry of presence, and we want to love people well. We want to strive to be those Christ followers who quietly serve and love in the midst of hardship. Those who do the things behind the scenes when somebody is struggling are often the ones who bless the most. All right, so back to Job and Elihu. So as Elihu is rebuking Job, he sees a storm coming, and he describes both it and the Lord with just intense majesty. He says, my heart pounds as I think of this. It trembles within me. Listen carefully to the thunder of God's voice as it rolls from his mouth. It rolls across the heavens, and his lightning flashes in every direction. Then comes the roaring of the thunder, the tremendous voice of his majesty. He does not restrain it when he speaks. God's voice is glorious in the thunder. We can't even imagine the greatness of his power. So then, out of the storm, the Lord spoke, finally. And the Lord was there to answer Job. But we're not going to talk about it tonight. <laughs> we're going to stop the story here, because it's long. And we're done. But next week, we are going to talk about the Lord's response to Job, and then how Job responded to that, because it's powerful, so don't miss it. We're also going to have a panel of people up here, and we are going to talk about things that they've walked through, how they've walked through them, and what the Lord has done in their lives. So I don't want you to miss. Now, I want you guys all to bow your heads real quick, because I am not naive enough to be standing up here and think like, I'm the only one walking through something. I know I'm not. And so I just want to take a moment and if you're walking through something and you're just really struggling, if you're grieving, whatever the case might be, um, I just want to pray for you right now. And so if you're kind of in that boat, if you would just raise your hand, I want to be able just to see you, and then I'll just pray for you in this moment. Okay, cool, cool. All right, anyone else? Okay. All right, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you, and Lord, we know that you see everything that we walk through. We know that you know. You see and you care. 
God, for every person that raised their hand, and even for the ones who did not raise their hands, God, we ask that you would be with them, that they would feel your loving, sweet presence. God, that they know that you hear when they pray, and God, that you would act on their behalf. Lord, we ask that you would bring healing and restoration. We ask that you would restore the joy of their salvation. And we ask that you would just move in their lives. And so, God, I thank you for these who raised their hands, and, and again, for those who didn't, God, you know their stories. And I ask, God, that your, your ever-present peace would just be with us tonight as we go. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to know more about The Harbor, please follow us on Instagram at wearetheharbor. Also, if you need prayer, feel free to send us a DM. Otherwise, tune in next time.